Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is the legend, John Kessler. <laughs> he is a multiple-time Nebula Award winner, the first director of the MFA program in creative writing at one of my alma maters, North Carolina State University. And he is the author of the new collection, The Dark Ride, the best short fiction of John Kessel, which is published by our friends at Subterranean Press. John, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here, John. And before we get started, listeners, this is our 200th episode. I never imagined when I started this podcast almost four years ago at Quill Ridge Books that it would still be going and would have gathered so much steam. I have you listeners to thank for that, along with our presenter, Explore Booksellers, our sponsors, Quail Ridge Books, Libro FM Audiobooks, and the Crook's Corner Book Prize. And John, especially authors like you and your wife, Teresa Ann Fowler, who both of you were uh, some of the earliest authors on this show and have been supporters ever since. So thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be uh, on this milestone uh, uh, episode. So that's uh, that's fun. Absolutely. I'm honored to have you here for it, John. And um, I wanted to have you on for the 200th episode, not only because you were uh, an instrumental instructor at North Carolina State University, where I got my master's degree in literature, not only because of your early support for this program, but also because of your support uh, for the North Carolina Book Festival, which I had the pleasure of running three times in 2014, 2019, and 2020, right before COVID-19 hit us all so hard. I know you originally worked in Kansas, I believe, John, which is a little closer to where I am now in Colorado, and you've spent time in Buffalo, but you're in North Carolina now and have been for a long time. Uh, what does North Carolina mean to you, John, and how do you feel about the literary scene there? It's uh, interesting. Uh, um, I I have been here longer than any, I've lived, been anywhere else in my life, long more than half of my life, which I never would have expected being a Western New York kid and then being out in Kansas and Missouri for 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I first came here, I felt pretty much like, a, you know, a Yankee uh, invader. Uh, but but uh, I, uh, I found it a very welcoming place for writers, uh, the Triangle area in particular, but the, the whole state actually has a tradition of writers going back a long way. And, and uh, I've made many very close friends. Uh, you know, my colleague, uh, Wilton Barnhart, and um, my other colleague, Abel Boggs, uh, and uh, uh, the poets, uh, Dorian Locks and Joe Millar, and uh, uh, my wife I met here, uh, Teresa Ann Fowler, my uh, for former students, uh, writers like uh, Richard Butner, who has a, a collection out this year, uh, it's it's really been a very good thing for me, uh, sort of to be in a in a locus of uh, the writing world. You know, being in part of the MFA program that also put me in contact with any number of of writers. And then then there's the, the book festivals and all these other things. It's really a pretty lively place for writing. Absolutely, thank you so much, John. I haven't read Rich's collection yet, but it's on my shelf. I look forward to getting to it. Um, 
We're now going to dive into this excellent new collection, The Dark Ride. Uh, and then a bit after the break, listeners, we're going to talk a little bit about the current state uh, of science fiction and literary fiction as a whole. Uh, but for now, The Dark Ride. First, John, your friend Kim Stanley Robinson wrote the introduction to this. Can you tell us about your friendship with Stan and how your careers have paralleled one another? Well, uh, he's one of my oldest friends in the in the writing world. And uh, uh, I first um, met him through his writing. Uh, I read uh, his short fiction uh, when we were both just writing short stories in the late 70s, early 80s. We were both young writers. He's two years younger than I am. But we came into the genre of science fiction at the same time, published in the same magazines, uh, read the same stories and books, and both of us big fans of Philip K. Dick. Uh, he he did a PhD dissertation on the novels of Philip K. Dick, which isn't read by a lot of people, but it's a really good book. And so uh, we first met in person in uh, 1982 at a con conference in uh, Baltimore. And, uh, uh, you know, we just hit it off very, very well. We, we visited each other in various places we've lived. Uh, he lived in Switzerland in the 80s, and I used corresponded with him uh, regularly and, and so uh, read all of his fiction. It's, it's really a very uh, a, a close friendship, and he's been an inspiration to me in <laughs> uh, the fact that he's been so, so diligent and so good for so long and written, writing any number of different kinds of books. So uh, uh, it's really, a, I was very honored to have him uh, write the intro and uh, even noticed a couple of things about my writing that I may not have noticed about myself. Absolutely, and it's a fantastic introduction. Thank you, John. Um, let's now talk about the first story in your collection, Not Responsible, Park It and Lock It. Um, I want to ask about the line, for a first birth, Polly's labor was surprisingly short. Uh, have you found in your life, John, uh, that a woman's first labor is usually long? <laughs> well, when I wrote that story, I had never uh, been a parent and never experienced a labor even from uh, as an observer. So uh, I don't know where I came up with that line. It may be something that I heard somewhere. But, you know, when you're a young writer, you always are trying to act like you know things that you don't really know. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I uh, you know, uh, uh, the mysteries of, uh, of gestation and uh, birth, uh, you know, were, were, were large. And I, I uh, but I put that in there. Uh, you know, the story is really about, it's a family story about this family, uh, father, mother, sister, and, and the protagonist, uh, David. And, and so I, um, I wanted to, it comes really in some ways from my own uh, uh, growing up in a family. And, you know, even when you're a kid, you, you'll hear your mother talking to her friends or maybe even talking to you about, you know, what it was like to be pregnant with you and what it was like to give birth. And so, uh, so that becomes kind of the lore of your family. And so that's sort of what I was trying to get at with uh with David's version of that story, how how he had these impressions that came to him when he was very young and that stuck with him, even though he really didn't understand all the things that his parents were telling him. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I ask this as I remember uh, my wife giving birth to our son, Van, and her labor was 18 hours long, give or take. Yeah, um, yeah so your, your line rang true for me. Um, Let's talk about education for a moment. You write in this story, and I quote, 
They teach a thing in school and everybody believes it. And nobody knows why or even thinks to ask, end quote. Um, I agree with this idea, John, and also find it curious coming from someone who spent so many years of their life in education. Uh, can you please talk about this quote, John? Sure. Uh, again, uh, in that story, I was trying to get in the head of a, of a, a young a kid following this, this boy from his childhood to his, his uh, early adulthood when he leaves his family. And, and so, uh, you know, I tried to put myself in the head of, of uh, what it was like when I was in grade school. And uh, it's, I think, seems to me, actually, that, that the world of children is not uh, the same as the world of adults. And, and we often forget what it's like to be a kid. And, and so the things that we take for granted and we think we've explained it to a child uh, or we've given them reasons for why this is true and this isn't, uh, to a kid that that doesn't seem to register or it doesn't register as well. And so they, they don't have a context for that. And um, as a teacher, you know, I spent my career as a teacher as well as a writer. Uh, it's, it's, it's been uh, important to me to try to re remember what it's like when you're a student and how, you know, uh, one of the things that's a trap for, I think, uh, teachers or professors is that, uh, you, you get irritated with uh, students because they're ignorant about something. But the whole point of being a student is that you're ignorant. <laughs> That's why they go to school. So, so it, it's important to remember that, that uh, you know, there are things to be learned and, and uh, uh, that's not how, how when, you, when you're young, you don't, you don't know these things. Yeah, thanks, John. And you're reminding me of a quote that I believe you were talking about on social media the other day, and I'm not going to remember the exact quote, but it's about aging. And um, the quote is like, what a strange thing to happen to a little boy, um, which I've thought about ever since I saw it posted the other day. Uh, fantastic quote. Yeah, um, I, I ran into that in this book, actually. I just finished reading uh, by Jeff Dyer, The Last mm -hmm. Days of Roger Federer. And uh, it's a it's a wonderful book, strange book, uh, all over the map. It's funny. But yeah, that that struck me, that line, you know, the idea of what a strange thing to happen to a little boy to get old. Uh, you know, as I am older now, I think about and I remember all the things that got me to where I am now. But still, you're at some level, you're, you're still a little boy uh, that these things happen to. Absolutely. And a lot of writing out there about Roger Federer, Jeff Dyer, and David Foster Wallace and others uh, worth checking out. Um, well, to return to this story for a moment, John, the opening story in your collection, um, what's going on here? Why the endless driving? I found this to be a sort of a, um, a rat race metaphor and also found it to be similar to another story about walking uh, by another author that I believe your story predated. Um, can you talk about what is going on in this story with the driving and the roads? Well, uh, you know, I, the, the idea for this came from a friend of mine uh, who, who I knew in grad school at the University of Kansas uh, named Tim Roth. And he'd written a story with a similar premise. And then he gave up writing. I won't go into the details. In, in my end notes of the book, I talk about that at some length. Uh, and uh, I had always thought that was uh, the, the thing about it was uh, the metaphor of, of uh, you know, life as as driving on a highway. And and uh, in, in my story, uh, people drive their whole lives. They spend all their time in the cars. 
they stop it in the evenings. And I, 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 I liked the idea of taking something that was completely absurd, that really could not exist in the real world, and then treating it with as much realism as I could muster. And, and uh, you know, if you think about uh, our lives in American culture, um, we are, we're, you know, we're on this, this journey uh, and our parents, our relatives, everyone else around us, we're all on this journey. And I don't know that we all, none of us really started it <laughs> and, and, but we're, we're acculturated to it. And, and uh, uh, we, we uh, you know, some of us ask questions about why we are made to live or, or have chosen to live the way we live, but most of us just go along with it. And uh, um, that to me is a, a fundamental human uh, reality. And, uh, but it's funny in a way, and it's absurd. And, and I thought by putting people in uh, these automobiles on westbound highway, uh, which is, is very um, what, mysterious, that that would, would um, make visible uh, things that if I had set the same story in an ordinary suburban home, uh, in, in in some American city uh, with the same characters, uh, it wouldn't have the same effect. Okay, that that the absurdity and the fantastic element there is a way of uh, of opening up the the what the psychology and the and the everyday life of of an American family. Um, and I, that kind of story actually has appealed to me since I started writing and, and there are other stories in, in the book that, that use a similar method. Absolutely. Thank you so much, John. Listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. Then I will be right back with John Kessel. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with John Kessel, author of The Dark Ride, which is published by our friends at Subterranean Press. John, I want to move on to the second story in this collection, uh, events preceding the Helvetican Renaissance. And I know, John, that you are a guitar player. Uh, what does it signal when our protagonist walks into a room and sees a circular bar made of rosewood? Rosewood is at a premium these days, as you know. Gosh, I hadn't thought about the guitar connection when I uh, I described that place with the bar. Uh, uh, you know, I, I can't say that I was consciously thinking about a, a guitar construction at all when I did that. I was just thinking of a kind of upscale uh, uh, restaurant which had an exotic, uh, uh, you know, uh, an exotic bar, okay, uh, uh, where our hero is trying to hide out from the people who are chasing him. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, for our, those of our listeners who are, who are unaware, Rosewood is sort of hard to get a hold of these days for good reasons, for uh, environmental concerns, um, et cetera. Uh, but John, can you talk to us about the idea um, that plays, dramatic plays, a portfolio of plays holds all of the wisdom that is necessary uh, for a human religion? Yeah, um, um, I, I, um, I, when I wrote that story, I was trying to write a kind of science fiction story that, that well, it's pretty popular, uh, uh, so-called space opera. I mean, think about the Star Wars movies. They're really uh, uh, based on the classic space operas that go back to the 1930s and written science fiction. And so I thought I'd take my try my hand at that, not a kind of science fiction I generally write. And so, so I wanted to have a very exotic and very distant future, uh, very different from our own times. And so I, I created this idea of, uh, of a civilization that spans numbers of planets that uh, 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 has a religion that is based on these, these foundational plays. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, if you think about, um, uh, there are religions, uh, you know, Hinduism uh, that have these, well, all religions have these sort of foundational stories that get told. The Bible is full of stories and, uh, you know, it's full of moral uh, uh, instruction and prohibitions, but it's also full of, of just stories. And I think that most religions have that element of story in them. And so uh, uh, I thought, well, you know, why not a, 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 a bunch of plays? Uh, but then the other thing I have in the story is this, uh, the, the hero has stolen the only copies of these plays from the archive where they're preserved and is going to use them uh, 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 to blackmail or to ransom uh, his home planet, which is under the control of uh, uh, evil empire. And so I was able to have all kinds of, uh, you know, hugger mugger space battles uh, 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 with the, the central uh, uh, precious object that they're fighting about. Uh, this is the set of plays, which is not what you normally get in space opera. Usually it's some other kind of gizmo. But, uh, but I, I thought it was interesting to have this sort of cultural artifact be the heart of the, the conflict. Yeah, I agree. It's a fantastic story. Thank you, John. Um, the third story in your collection is Pride and Prometheus, and I'm not going to talk about this one, listeners, because we have a whole episode of this podcast dedicated to Pride and Prometheus. Please go back and listen to that episode in the archives after you listen to this one. Pride and Prometheus is one of my favorite books to be released in recent years. Uh, but John, I do want to talk about the story, The Motorman's Coat, which takes place, speaking of Philip K. Dick, as you did earlier, uh, in an antique shop. Um, the setting uh, definitely reminded me of a Philip K. Dick novel there. Um, John, I'm hoping you can talk about the genre of this story, because most readers uh, will probably consider you a sci-fi author, but this story does not seem to belong to any genre so far as I can tell. It is a straight up literary story uh, about the fetishization of an object and the lust for an object. Using this story as a jumping off point, John, can you talk to us about genre and the perception of yourself as a genre author? Yeah, actually, that's something I'm quite interested in because I am generally uh, seen as a science fiction writer. Most of my stories have been published in science fiction publications, but I'm not really, 
I think people who get their idea of what science fiction is from movies, say, or TV shows, will be perhaps disappointed by my fiction because so much of it doesn't really uh, map onto that, okay? There's not a lot of technology. It's not in the distant future. There's no spaceships or aliens. Uh, and so, so uh, I'm also I'm interested in stories that are odd and and surreal and and uh, that also are focused on the characters and their their personal situations and and the problems that that uh, come to them uh, that are not really based on some fantastic element. Although every pretty much every story I I, I write has some element of the of the strange in it. And so I uh, think of writers who influence me who are not considered science fiction writers, but are strange people like Franz Kafka or Jorge Luis Borges, uh, uh, the, the Argentinian writer, and uh, um, many, many other writers. And, and uh, so I've tried to do stories a little bit like that. That story actually was inspired by my doing some teaching in Prague in the Czech Republic. And uh, two of the most famous writers associated with Prague are Franz Kafka, and uh, the Czech writer Karl Čapek, uh, who wrote a wonderful uh, novel called War with the Newts, as well as many other. Uh, he wrote, he wrote, he invented the term robot. He wrote a play called RUR that was the origin of the term robot in the 1920s. So, so uh, Čapek and Kafka both wrote strange stories set in what seems to be the ordinary world but they had very weird events occur in them. And so that kind of story has always appealed to me. And I've, I've got a number of them in this book. Uh, over the last 40 years of writing stories, I've, I've come back to this kind of story more than once. Absolutely. Thank you so much, John. And I want to continue along these lines for a moment. Uh, what is the current state of science fiction, in your opinion? And what is the current state of literary fiction, where so many best-selling authors are using genre tropes in their works of quote-unquote literary fiction? Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, the borders between literary fiction and genre fiction have become a lot more permeable than they were when I started out in the 1970s. Uh, then if you, you wrote science fiction, it pretty much had to appear in a science fiction magazine. Um, and nowadays, I think that it's a lot more common. It's, it's, it's accepted to have elements of the fantastic and the strange in, in um, uh, ordinary so-called mainstream fiction or literary fiction. And uh, you know, people like Emily St. John uh, Mandel or uh, uh, was uh, the woman who wrote the um, visit from the, the Goon Squad, uh, or um, uh, you know, this sort of thing is, is published all the time and is, is quite popular. And then on the uh, on the science fiction side, you have nowadays a real huge influx of of writers who are young and different. And uh, uh, one thing that uh, uh, the the racial mix and the gender mix of, of writers coming into genre fiction is is really completely changed from when I started out. And that leads to a lot of interesting fiction that doesn't really follow the kind of hard and fast uh, borders that that science fiction and fantasy had when I, when I was starting out. This stuff is all mixed together like in a big gumbo. And all these writers are working in some different areas of this, this restaurant, <laughs> producing their own, their own uh, uh, treats for us. 
Thank you so much, uh, John and Jennifer Egan, the author of Goon Squad. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Emily St. John Mandel, I recently had her back on the show for her new novel, Sea of Tranquility. Uh, and she said that she finds the science fiction community to be more resistant to outsiders uh, than the literary um, I suppose, mainstream um, literature community. Do you have any thoughts or insight about that? Well, I think that she's observing a real thing. Um, I think what I would say about that is that, uh, you know, people in the science fiction community have uh, uh, certain understandings of how you're supposed to write this stuff. And uh, writers who come from without that community uh, don't know those those uh, customs and um, may may violate them, or, or frankly, the way I would put it is that they don't really care about the same things. So, for instance, I've read *Sea of Tranquility*, which I liked quite a bit, but a lot of the story is set uh, several hundred years in the future on the moon, and it's very clear that Emily St. John Mandel doesn't really care about the moon <laughs> or what the moon is really like. Uh, it's just the setting that she uses, and it might as well be Cleveland. Uh, uh, and that's okay, because it works fine in the context of her book. But some science fiction readers might, uh, I think, have some difficulty with that. Although, frankly, I think most science fiction writers are quite open to reading uh, science fiction by people not within the genre. I, 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 everyone of, uh, that I know is reading uh this kind of stuff. Uh, Mandel's books uh, are read widely in the world of science fiction. Um, you know, it's really funny. And the other side of this is that, yes, in the literary fiction, uh, there are many stories being published that might only have been published as science fiction 40 years ago. But if someone starts out in the world of science fiction, it's difficult for them to get recognized in the literary world as a literary fiction writer, because they, you're sort of tarred with the brush of being from science fiction. And, and so, in other words, the border is permeable, but there still are differences on either side of it. That's, that's what I would say, is that the things that people within the genre care about and the things that people without the genre, what they care about are not always exactly the same, or the way they go about it is different. And that's fine. I think that uh, you know people should be able allowed to write whatever they write, and people should read and enjoy whatever they they do. Uh, but I do think there are some some sort of cultural differences that perhaps still still exist. Absolutely. Um, do you have a favorite recent book, John, that involves um, a treatment of the moon? I'm partial to Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves. I have not. I have not read that. Uh, I. Uh, um, I, I, um, um, Ian, Mac, Ian um, McDonald, uh, wrote the, uh, the, a, a lunar trilogy where he really does a wonderful job of creating this lunar society of the, of the future. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not thinking that I read, oh, I read Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Red Moon, which came out a couple of years ago. Uh, and, you know, he really, uh, uh, I thought did a, a pretty good job with uh, creating a, a plausible moon, although he has it in the very near future, uh, where the Chinese have basically uh, uh, colonized the moon ahead of uh, uh, the U.S. and the, and the West. Uh, so, yeah. you know what? One book that I've really enjoyed lately has nothing to do with the moon is uh, 
I re recently read Piranesi by uh, uh, Susanna Clark, if you know her. So I cross over the fantasy line. That, that I guess we call it a fantasy book, but uh, uh, it's really a wonderfully strange book and I, I cannot recommend it uh, too highly. It's really a terrific uh, uh, novel. Uh, you know her, most people know her from her book, long book, um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, so. Yeah, um, I haven't read Piranesi, but I've heard great things. And while we're plugging fantasy books, I will say I'm on the Indies Introduce Committee this year, which we're reading tons of manuscripts by first-time authors. And there's this one coming out soon in 2023 called uh, To Shape a Dragon's Breath um, by Monaquil Black Goose. I've never read anything quite like it. So uh, listeners, you'll have something to look forward to there. Um, but John, finally, uh, I want to say that every time I read one of your works, I'm astounded. Um, I'm a champion of the works of John Kessel, and I always will be. How, John, does this collection, The Dark Bride, supplement and or recontextualize your writing career for readers old and new? Well, uh, one thing I, I think is it may introduce my work to some people who have never run into it before. And I, I hope that the, that does happen. Uh, it has a, a lot of different kinds of stories. And I think that um, that even if you've read my work before, I think putting all these things together mm -hmm. in one book will illustrate maybe a little more than people have may have noticed that I'm, I, my work covers a broad range from science fiction to fantasy, to surreal fiction, to, uh, to uh, even some elements of horror or ghost stories. Uh, or stories that are really very close to uh, contemporary uh, mainstream fiction. And so uh, that I think is one of the things that, that, uh, that you might get from this book. The other thing is you get that I've been doing it for a long time. The first story that, uh, the oldest story in this book was published in uh, 1981. And the, the most recent story was published in 2021. So uh, uh, that, to me is, a, a, I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that I, I hope maintain some level of consistent quality uh, while going through a lot of variations over a period of 40 years. So that's, that's what I, I think is going on here. Absolutely. I would agree with that, John. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for writing these wonderful stories and for everything else that you do as a champion of literature. Listeners, I've been speaking with John Kessel, author, of The Dark Ride, which is published by our friends at Subterranean Press. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's fun to talk. Once again, I would like to thank John Kessel for joining me. Copies of The Dark Ride can be purchased from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Quail Ridge Books and Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.